you're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org. I'm going to speak for 15 minutes this morning uh, on this topic, the second of our three big questions, what should we teach children uh, about our faith? And then we're going to have five minutes where we're going to play some music, and that's the time for you to write any questions that you might have about this topic, and then we're going to grab some stools, put them out the front, and then we're going to have a panel of people who are then going to speak for 10 minutes answering any of those questions that you have. So I have 15 minutes, um, and I'm going to try and cover as much of what I've got in that 15 minutes, but I'm going to start by singing a song. Are you ready? I mean, I haven't sung it yet. I'll save the cheering uh, for now. So it goes like this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, Peter, Peter, John, 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 Jude, Revelation. Um... Uh, I confess, I did have the words written down in case I forgot them. (laughs) So, uh, now just in case there are some of you who don't know your Bible particularly well, uh, actually this week I've read a couple of reviews of Steve's new book that suggest that none of us in this church know our Bible particularly well, but just in case, uh, that's a story for another time, Uh, just in case you don't, they are the books of the New Testament in the order in which we find them in our Bibles. Um, My sister, who's a couple of years older than me, she can do the whole of the Old Testament as well. That's because she's a better Christian than I am. Um, I get a bit lost somewhere in the minor prophets, you know. Uh, So my sister and I were both taught this song in Sunday school when we were kids. Um, And knowing the lyrics to that song is one of the... um, benefits of uh, having the kind of Baptist upbringing that my sister and I had. Um, We were first taken to chapel in a small South Wales town. We were days old and it defined a lot of our childhood. Um, When we were very young, it was chapel at 11, then you came home for Sunday lunch and then it was back to Sunday school for 3 p.m., then you came home for tea and then you went back for the evening service at 6 o'clock every single week. Um, When I got a bit older, they moved Sunday school school to 10 a.m. before the morning service, which was great because even though that meant you had a really long morning, at least you could get back for the football in the afternoon. Um, That's Elton Wellesby who who, uh, presented the big match on ITV, which was my regular Sunday afternoon watch. Um, Now, there are definite benefits. There are huge benefits to growing up in a church like that. I learned from so many wise, older Christians um, who'd served the church year after year and who always, always prayed for us kids. I learned from these preachers who often didn't have any theology qualifications but could really preach and could quote huge chunks of the Bible, chapter and verse, leaving me with a pretty decent knowledge of the Bible for somebody who would generally switch off in any RE lesson in school. But here's the thing that I think we should talk about this morning. I think most people brought up in a church like this will eventually go through a time which I called my do I believe anything I was taught in Sunday school phase. How many people here went through something similar? Yeah, loads of us. So we're going to come back to that later. 
But for now, let's look at the Bible reading that the kids read to us. It was from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, which is the chapter after Moses is given the Ten Commandments. He's come back down the mountain, and he's standing in front of the people of God. And he's trying to encourage them, to inspire them, to follow these commandments, to get them to commit to living life this new way. Moses says God has made a covenant, an inspired agreement with us. And we must take this seriously and live in accordance with this covenant. Otherwise, everything will just go back to the way it was. The land and the people will go back to being exploited unless, unless we follow these commandments. Moses is telling the people their story so they remember who they are, so they know where their people have come from, and so that they will live in this promise of God for the generations to come. And it's the same story that Jewish people still tell generations and generations later. Moses says these words, Hear this, people of Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is how we are to live. And then Moses says these words, which I really love from verse 6 onwards. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your city gates. But back to today, I think that part of the issue that sometimes what we have, particularly those of us who raised our hand earlier, we have a bit of a worry about impressing them on our children, don't we? We're unsure sometimes of what to say. And we're so worried about teaching our kids the wrong thing that sometimes we struggle to teach them anything. See, when I was young, it was easy. There were easy answers to everything. Why is there suffering in the world? Well, because Eve ate the apple in the Garden of Eden. Sin entered the world and injustice is just the natural consequence. Are those people who don't believe in God really going to burn in hell for eternity? Well, yeah, but, that, but that's because God is a judge who judges fairly, and so some people will be found wanting, or because it's like a party, and some people choose not to follow the invite. But those answers don't work for me anymore, which is fine for me. I feel like I have a stronger, kind of more robust theology now, which not only has different answers to those answers, but is actually okay with sometimes not really having answers at all. But sometimes that can be a struggle when we're talking to kids, can't it? Sometimes that's not that useful when you're trying to explain some of this stuff to your kids, to your nephews, your nieces, or anybody else's kids. It's not just the questions like, how do I tell them that there probably wasn't a Garden of Eden? Or that there couldn't possibly have been an ark containing two of each animal. It's things like, to be honest, Joshua maybe did a lot more than blow some horns to take over Jericho. Or how about the bits where God, you know, just isn't very nice, it would appear. In the Old Testament alone, if you take it at face value, God kills millions. Now, I've got a grown-up's answer for that. But I think sometimes we struggle to try and put that into language which we can explain to kids. And then we tie ourselves in knots about things like prayer. Should I tell my kids that they should pray that God will heal them? Because what happens if he doesn't? 
And what about things like sin? How do I explain that? When my view of it is different to the view I had when I was being brought up. So how do we get past all this? I've got three quick thoughts. And then I'm sure we'll explain some of those questions in a bit more depth when we do the Q&A later on. The first is this. I think children understand quicker than adults. Now, there's obviously a whole load about child development theory, which we're not going to talk about because I've only got 15 minutes, but we could pick up some of that in the panel afterwards if you'd like. But one thing I will touch on is the very intellectual, psychological, and theological approach known as the Father Christmas method. I tell my kids that Father Christmas is real. Actually, it's worse than that. I outright lie to them about Father Christmas. They say things like, how could he deliver all those presents in one night all across the world? And I say, well, because they sprinkled magic fairy dust on the reindeers, don't they? Go to sleep. I actually lie to them outright. At some point in a few years, I will confide in my kids that Father Christmas isn't actually real. I say it quietly just in case Todd's church can hear. Um, I will tell them that everyone has been lying to them their whole lives. Now, hear me, hear me correctly on this. I don't think Noah's Ark is identical to Father Christmas, but I do think we can take a similar approach. I say similar, not identical. No outright lying, hopefully, here. But my kids have got a cartoon print of Noah's Ark on the wall in their um, bedroom. It's been there since Saren was born. She's nearly eight now. And so far... All Noah's Ark is to them is a cool story about a big boat and a load of animals. And I think that's fine. So far, I think that's fine. But they're getting to an age where soon I'll want to tell them a bit more about Noah's Ark. And I think that adults can tie themselves up in knots of it, can't they, about those kind of conversations, um, without realizing sometimes that kids don't have the same kind of theological hang-ups about literalism that we have, because they've not gone through all that. So I'll tell them that Noah's Ark isn't actually real, but it's a story, but it's a really important story. Because when it was first told, the people who heard the story would have been expecting the story to end in a really rubbish way about how God wasn't happy with people and wanting to punish them. But then the story had a twist. And it was actually about how God loved them and God cared for them and that God was on their side. And still today, it teaches us about how God loves us. That God is still on our side. And that that's much more important about whether Noah actually built an ark. The second thing I'm going to say is that it's about the whole village. We'll come back to our Bible verses for today and specifically to verse 7. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Impress them on your children. The thing about this is that it's not aimed at parents. It's aimed at the whole community. Impress them on your children is a directive to the whole community. The beginning of the title of today's talk is It Takes a Village to Raise a Child. And although I feel like this is a line that gets quoted so often these days, it's beginning to sound a bit like a cliche, it is still completely 100% true. Our kids are growing up to become better versions of themselves because of so many of you in this room. We are hugely grateful for the role that so many of you play 
in the lives of our kids. I think the way that all of us interact with all of the children in this community makes a huge difference. Not just about what we say, but how we act as well. All of the ways that we interact with them. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with sport, particularly football. You could tell me any player in the whole of the top division, and I could tell you who he played for, who he used to play for, how much he had cost when he'd moved from that club to that club, whether he was right-footed or left-footed, what position he played in, what his strengths were, what his weaknesses were, anything you wanted to know. I was obsessed. I still remember the dates of birth of players who retired from football in about 1990 because I remember that much detail. And the thing was that when I went to church on a Sunday, there would be, you know, these old men, some of them might even have been 30, you know, these old men who every week would come and talk to me about football. They knew what team I supported. They knew who my favorite players were, and they would chat to me about football. And it was one of the things that I looked forward to about going to church, and one of the reasons that I was happy going to church. And now, 30 years later, I see Leanne's gem having exactly those same conversations with some of the grown-ups in this church. And I love that. This uh, is a teacher uh, called Rita Pearson. Um, You should look it up on the TED website. She's given this incredible TED talk called Every Child Needs a Champion. And in it, she says, every child deserves an adult who will never give up on them. Every child deserves an adult who will never give up on them. The talk is amazing. You really should watch it. But the one thing that I would change is I'd say every child deserves a community who will never give up on them. Every child needs multiple adults who will never give up on them. And I think what we probably, what we all want from this church is that this will be one of those places where every child would find those champions. Quickly then, my third and final point is this. You don't rebel against revolution. I think part of the issue is that we've made Christianity really boring, haven't we? I mean, really, really dull. I, um, when I was a kid, it was come in, sit down, be quiet, sit still, listen to all these grown-ups talk, learn these memory verses, read these complicated translations of different, difficult Bible passages. I mean, really boring. But I'm still here. And I have a few cousins who were brought up in exactly the same way as me. They lived around the corner from me. They went to the same schools. They went to the same Sunday school. They were taught by the same people. But none of them go to church now. And my sister and I both do. So what's the difference? What's the secret? I think secretly this is the million-dollar question that every parent wants an answer to. I remember being in a church many years ago when we were talking about this, long before we had kids, and a lady in the congregation put her hand up, and the, the preacher said, oh, uh, yeah, sorry, what, 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 what have you got to say? And she said, well, I think it's simple. Every day of my daughter's life, I have prayed with her. We read the Bible regularly. I talk to her all the time about Jesus, and I brought her to church every Sunday since she's been born, and now she's a teenager, and she chooses to come to church on her own. She said it in a particularly condescending manner, which annoyed quite a lot of the parents who were in the room, regardless of whether their kids were still in the church or not. Because it's hard, isn't it? Sadly, that isn't the answer. It isn't as straightforward as that. I know loads of great parents, great Christians who have come to church, brought their kids to church, done all of those things, and their kids don't want to know anymore. Because it's hard. I think there is no secret answer. That's the problem here. But I wonder if part of an answer is activism, is revolution. 
When I was 11, my dad set up a charity to work with a load of churches in northwest Romania. It was just after the fall of communism, and poverty was huge over there. And so my dad set up this charity, and we took aid out to all these churches um, in Romania. And so I was 14 when I first went out to Romania. And I'd grown up in a you know, pretty poor part of the UK, but I saw poverty like I had never experienced it before. And it made a difference to me. When I came back, I spent a lot of time collecting food outside supermarkets, fundraising on the streets on a Saturday. I spent a lot of time traveling to Romania. Is that the 15 minutes? Oh, man, I'll be quick. Um, Hey, let's pretend it was a 17-minute countdown clock, shall we? Um, So I spent a lot of time traveling to Romania, sitting in the front of these vans for three days and then sleeping in the back to try and save money in 40-degree heat in the summer and in minus 10 degrees in the winter. And it made a difference to me. My dad's faith drove him to seek equality for our friends in Romania. It took me out of the church building away from the memory verses and all the terrible songs. And it taught me about justice. I think we need to teach kids about the real Jesus. Jesus, the revolutionary, the real Jesus, who fought for equality, who fought for justice, who stood up against the authorities, who got angry at the money lenders in the temple courts and turned their tables over, who healed people on the Sabbath because doing the work of the Lord was more important than following the law, who granted status to women when none existed, and non-married women at that, who was murdered because he threatened to bring down a corrupt political establishment, who said things like, God has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And we've turned him into a white-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed doorman, And we wonder why teenagers walk away from it. Teenagers rebel against rules, against routine. They don't so often rebel against revolution. Brian McLaren said this. (laughs) This is what Steve does every week. It's terrible. (laughs) One last quote. Brian McLaren says this. What if Jesus didn't come to start a new religion, but rather came to start a political, social, religious, artistic economic, intellectual, and spiritual revolution that would give birth to a new world. Last line. I think that's what we need to teach children about faith. And I think all the village has a part to play in it. Uh, So yeah, we're going to put some music on just for five minutes. We'll pass some paper and some pens around. If you have any thoughts or any questions, we're going to grab some stools. And then Louisa and Anna and Duncan are going to come down to the front and they're going to help me to answer some of these. We'll see you in two minutes. Okay, um, we have roughly a million questions, which is great. Um, So we're going to try and do this in 10, well, we've got 11 minutes until half 12. 11 minutes sounds like a good deadline, and a deadline I will stick to this time, as opposed to the last two or whatever I had. Um, Guys, would you like to introduce yourself very briefly, and then we'll get on with the first of the questions. I'm Louisa. Um, I work here with the children and families. Um, is that enough? Yeah? Great. You know, I think most people know me. I said brief. Yeah, great. Hello, I'm Duncan. You've probably normally see me juggling either a five-year-old or a baby here, uh-huh. <laughs> one way or another. And so that means I've been coming here since the eldest was born, which is therefore six years or so. I think it's been four years since I was let, let loose with a mic <laughs> up the front here. So you've been very brave. 
Uh, my name's Anna. Uh, I'm an RS teacher in a secondary school, uh, so I think that's why I'm here. Um, I've been coming to church for, I think, around about eight years, uh, and this is my first time on a panel, so go easy on me, please. <laughs> um, well, the first question I'm going to ask is to Anna. Um, why can't we teach our kids Bible stories and let them find their own interpretation without us telling our own views and imposing them on which parts are true? Okay, so um, my personal view uh, is that I actually think that's exactly what we should do. Um, when I was helping out with Kids Church, we started doing something called P for C, Philosophy for Children. Um, and it's all about providing kids with some kind of stimulus uh, which gets them thinking. Um, and then off the back of that stimulus, they come up with questions which they explore uh, through an inquiry. Now, we decided to explore a bit and experiment with that in a church context. Um, and so we would uh, read the story or act out the story in some way and then encourage the students, or the students, <laughs> so used to being a teacher, uh, the kids, uh, we'd encourage them to explore the, question, sorry, explore the story themselves and come up with their own questions off the back of that story. And in fact, lots of the questions they came up with were ones that we as adults would never have thought of in a million years because we as adults, I think, get so used to thinking in a very... Uh, uh, kind of rigid way, whereas kids, their minds are still so free, and so they come up with all, excuse me, all kinds of fascinating questions, uh, all kinds of fascinating interpretations on stories. So I think actually that is a really positive approach. Mm. I don't then think there's anything wrong with you then saying, okay, my understanding of this story is X, Y, Z. What do you think about that? I think that's absolutely fine. Mm. Great. Anybody else got anything to add on that one? Um, when we first started doing this, there were some of the volunteers and helpers who were worried about, but what's the right answer? But were we actually teaching them? And actually, it's more as adults, we, we are wanting to know what's the right answer. Whether we're telling children or whether we're telling ourselves, we actually just want the right answer. Whereas children are much happier to explore and question and not worry about the right answer. And I think as, as we do, do children's church, there's a certain amount of framing and comprehension that we inject into it. So it's important to look at the context. There might be some teaching in that sense of history or context or who are these people and who was this person, but we're not telling them the right answer. And I think ha children are much happier to do that than we are as adults. Great. We're going to try and we've got so many questions that I'm going to try and group a few of them into um, um, kind of topic areas, and we're going to try and race through as many as we can. Um, the next one, uh, which is a good one, is: Is there a case for the idea that we should teach children the truth, no matter how difficult? Yes. <laughs> next question. <laughs> that was a quick answer. Uh, elaborate maybe a little bit. <laughs> I think it's a bit like I was saying. There's some things that are. In the P4C sort of framework, there's an element of comprehension and speculation and other stuff. What was the <laughs> Critical thinking. So there are elements of we should be happy to teach certain elements. So generally, parents are quite happy to teach their children that you have to clean your teeth. There's no question about it. We're quite happy to teach them. We don't generally give them the option and allow them to think about whether that's the right thing or maybe they want to do something different. So I think we shouldn't be afraid to teach certain things, but then allow the speculation and the questioning to come from those things. Mm -hmm. 
Perhaps we should uh, teach them to seek truth. Most of us are bought into big lies all the time about our lives, about how we live, and most of us here and outside of here. So we're perhaps not the best, most reliable uh, witnesses to the truth much of the time. Uh, so uh, better, better that these, these children are more discerning and more challenging in seeking the truth themselves as they grow up. Yeah, great. Um, this is it. We've had a few questions around kind of parenting stuff. How might I balance my own faithfulness in meeting with God's people with being present for a child who refuses to do the same? That's a good one. Who wants to take that one? There's lots of looking around, if that's any help. How might I balance my own faithfulness in meeting with God's people with being present for a child who refuses to do the same? Is is that about coming to church on a Sunday? Yeah, 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 it is. I think it's about how do you engage with the service and with all those kind of bits and pieces when your children don't want to do that? It probably depends on the age of your child, I would say. So there's certain ages of children where you probably shouldn't leave them at home by themselves. <laughs> so they probably have to come with you. And I think that's where the whole community comes into play. So there's a very different relationship that as a parent I have with my child to once I'm within the community on a Sunday, there's different relationships there. So if my child is, for whatever reason, is not that enthusiastic about getting up in the morning or missing their sports or missing their favorite TV program, once they get to church, if they are then engaging with other adults who have, are exciting, fun people to be around or who are just interested in them as people, then I think they're more likely to want to be part of that community. As they get older, obviously, there's other choices, and that's up to them where they spend their physical Sundays. Yeah, great. Well, I mean, I'd like to say thank you to everyone who helps with the kids and youth work here. Uh, because in different ways as parents, we all struggle with that very question. And we talk about children's ministry, and it's right that we should think about how this work direct, directly helps these children. Uh, but actually, what it also does is it liberates their parents. And for those of you who don't have children in your care when you come here, you, know, you I hope, leave uh, nourished uh, in many ways from the opportunity to be here. Uh, and it's great that our parents, the parents here, have the opportunity to do that too uh, because of the work that um, you know, so many volunteers so enthusiastically um, do with our children. Mm -hmm. We're going to try and get through uh, a couple of quick ones. At what point does teaching your children your faith become brainwashing? Anna, you've been given a microphone. Uh, <laughs> I suppose it's at the point where they aren't allowed to question, isn't it? Exactly. At the point where they're not allowed to explore, when any, any exploration is shut down. Um, and just to say as well, um, quite keen to get this across to kind of parents or prospective parents and things. Um, in school these days, uh, RS <laughs> is nothing like how it used to be uh, when you went to school. Uh, I remember when I was studying RE at school, we coloured in bishops' hats, we read through the Christian Gospels, even though it's a secular school, and we learnt uh, all kinds of, inter or not interpretations, we were told kind of what it meant. Um, and we learned how to label different parts of a church 
These days it tends to be, uh, particularly in kind of state schools that aren't faith schools, um, religious studies rather than religious education. So it's an academic um, subject. Uh, it's a very critical space. So if you as a parent are kind of uh, keeping your child very safe, making sure they only learn one particular way of interpreting the Quran or the Bible, that kind of safe space that you think you've created for them as a, as a parent, and, and I can see why parents might want to do that, is going to get challenged, uh, hopefully, if they go to a secondary school that has good RS. And they will suddenly come face-to-face -face with those questions. Uh, they will be challenged by their peers. Um, they may even be uh, accused by their peers of being brainwashed. Um, so just to kind of prepare you as to what RS is in schools today, it is really a space where kids are invited into considering what they have been taught as a young person, why they believe what they believe, can they justify it, do they have good reasons, uh, can they consider other points of view and take those other points of view on board and can they kind of critically engage with all the arguments and come to a conclusion that they genuinely do hold to be true rather than kind of holding to a conclusion that they pretend they're going along with whereas actually inside they're thinking, oh, this doesn't really make much sense. Um, did that answer the question? And uh, we've got time for one more. Um, we've talked more mainly about kind of younger kids. There's one here about uh, slightly older kids. How do we retain teenagers and encourage them to avoid the social stigma and misperceptions of church? I think it's some of what Nathan was referring to earlier about understanding that being a Christian isn't just a label and a nice thing to do or a terrible thing to do and call yourself. It's actually about having a voice in the world. It's about fighting for justice. It's for not being afraid to use that voice. It's for putting faith in action. It's actually to be the person who is just genuinely making a difference around you. And then I don't think there's a stigma with that. I think there's an admiration of that. And I think particularly once children get to teenage years, that's actually what they're wanting. They want to know they can make a difference and that their voice can be heard. Thank you. Um, we will stop there because we haven't got time for any more. We've got absolutely loads of questions that we didn't have time to get to. Um, we, as most of you will know, we have an evening service which starts at 6.30. So we'll be doing this again tonight. I'll do that first 15 minutes again, then we'll have a break. And we'll have a load more time for just a bit more conversation as well as just kind of questions and answers. So if we didn't get to your question, then I'm sorry. Uh, if you can come back tonight, then we'll try and get to it then. But if not, there's a load of chance for conversation then. You've been listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org. 